In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Every time that I go up to visit my family after Christmas, for Christmas break, I'm always struck as I drive into the New York metro area of the explosion of advertisements as I get to northern New Jersey. After a quiet few hours, and I'm starting to get tired, suddenly there's all of this input from billboards everywhere. And vulnerable, tired from my journey, before my eyes float visions of coffee or food, things that I would like to fortify me in my weakness before the biggest battle I still have to fight, getting onto Long Island, going through New York. A successful sign points to a reality beyond itself, so much so that it becomes invisible. No one going down the highway thinks, look at that giant steel superstructure. If it's a good ad, he thinks, hmm, I might like that. If you're driving in the neighborhood, say around here, you're not going to think, look at that red hexagonal piece of metal. You're going to think, I should probably stop there. And if you're driving over down uh, on Kirby, coming up to Linway Terrace, you might even see that sign that warns you about a stop sign. And you're not thinking, I'd better watch out for a red hexagonal piece of metal. You're thinking, I'd better be careful. I'm going to have to stop ahead. In fact, because we're human beings, signs fill our lives. Almost everything we do is full of signs. Even our language is a sign. For instance, our written words are signs of our spoken words, which ultimately point to the thoughts in our heads, the true signs that point to realities. That's why it's interesting that we call, for instance, sign language, sign language. All languages, signs. Today, in the Gospel, Jesus performs a sign. It says, he did this as the beginning of his signs at Cana in Galilee, and so revealed his glory. It's not just a miracle. It's not just divine fireworks meant to make us perk up at the reading. It's a sign full of meaning directing us towards the messianic mission that Jesus has come to fulfill. Yes, Jesus is God, and ultimately every miracle teaches us that. But the sign at Cana also teaches us about the reality of the gospel. At the wedding of Cana, Jesus changes water into wine. The fathers of the church are all agreed that this symbolizes deeply the reality of grace which Jesus brings us in the New Testament. The first thing to pay attention to is that it's not merely changing water into wine. It's changing water, which is in stone jars, for ceremonial washings. It gives us a connection to the Old Testament. Jesus is taking something from the Old Testament which is good, the ceremonial washings, but fulfilling them in a far higher way. He shows that the Old Testament needs to be completed by a further gift of God in the New. Another aspect of the image is the wine given in abundance. Water is an image we see a lot in the scriptures. Water is often connected to the reality of life. 
Think of how in baptism, the waters of baptism bring us to new life. Wine, however, is an image of feasting. Wine is an image of the fullness of life, as in the prophecy in Isaiah, where the Lord promises that on the mountain of the Lord, he will give us a rich feast of wine and meat. And not only is there an image of abundance of life, there's an image of a vast abundance, something like 180 gallons of wine, which Jesus produces through this miracle. Another image, which is a little bit hidden in our reading today, in fact, it's clipped off the beginning of our reading, is that at the beginning of this passage, there's a mysterious reference to the time, to the day. It says not just, as it starts, there was a wedding. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. This should reorient us towards Epiphany again. On the Feast of the Epiphany, the Church mystically presents to us three epiphanies. Not just the Magi coming to the infant Christ, not just the baptism of the Lord where the Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove, but even a third epiphany, the wedding at Cana of Galilee. The third day represents mystically the appearance of God, just as it did in Exodus, for instance, when the people had to wait for three days until the Lord appeared in glory and gave the, the commandments to Moses. Or, of course, in the resurrection, when Christ appears again on the third day. This is a third day, an epiphany, a theophany, Jesus showing forth his divine power for the first time among men, which shows that this isn't just a private wedding gift that Jesus got for this person, but in fact a sign for all of us of the abundance of grace that he brings in the New Testament. In the image which we are given of grace, we are given, we are given some understanding of the reality of grace, of its necessity for our life. In the old law, we were given the command, but without the help. We were told what to do, but weren't given the means within the very command to do it. In the New Testament, we are given a command which in itself has the help, which has the aid to do it. There's a common error which we Christians have, which is of thinking that grace makes things easier, as if we could do without it, but it's awful helpful that we get it. In actual fact, without grace, we could never do acts which attain to God. Without grace, without Jesus acting in us, we couldn't do something worthy of God. For instance, one image which I like to, to use is, think, think of how, if you were in a boat, how you could get across the ocean. If your boat didn't have a motor on it, if you had no oars, if there were no mast or sails, you would just sit in the water. You couldn't get anywhere. But what if you had the mast and the sails? Then you'd have the power to get somewhere, but you wouldn't yet still get anywhere. Only when the wind is actually blowing into the sails will you yourself finally move. In the life of grace, we have both what corresponds to the mast and the sails, which is sanctifying grace, what exists permanently in our souls from baptism, but we also have the ability to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit, 
And without both of these, no good act is ever done by anyone. We need both of these. In the wedding of Cana, we are given the image of how that grace comes into our life, how the grace of the Spirit is given in superabundance through Jesus. In the wedding of Cana, we see already an image of the eternal banquet, a marriage begun in Christ Jesus when he took on our human form. That is the marriage already begun in him of the divine and the human, a marriage which is communicated to us through grace. In the Eucharist, we have what St. Thomas calls the extension of that incarnation, its continuation, so that its grace is brought forward to us in our life, so we can have the grace we need to be and to do good. Let us then approach the marriage supper of the Lamb, the sacrifice of the Mass, the Eucharist, here at this Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.